On today's episode of Radio Tintin, Urge begins work on the next Tintin adventure, but the Second World War will force him to make some consequential decisions. All this and more on today's episode of Radio Tintin, Urge, Le Soir, and the Second World War. Disaster! All over Europe, car engines are spontaneously combusting, and Tintin learns it's due to sabotage in the oil refinery process. He resolves to go undercover aboard an oil company's transport ship to Palestine, but he is arrested upon his arrival after planted documents are found in his cabin, and he is taken to the British authorities. Before he can be questioned, however, he is kidnapped by members of the Ergen, the underground Zionist paramilitary group, who have mistaken him for one of their own. They quickly realise their mistake, but before they can decide what to do with him, their car is ambushed by Arab insurgents, and Tintin is taken to meet Sheikh Bab Elah, who is leading an Arabian insurrection against both the British authority and the Jewish settlers. The Sheikh also believes Tintin is an Ergen agent, and takes him as a hostage before leaving him to perish in the harsh desert. He survives because he's a very clever young lad and witnesses a group of Arab insurgents blowing up a nearby oil pipeline. Following in disguise, the insurgents leader is revealed as none other than Tintin's old nemesis, the nefarious Dr. Mueller, who knocks Tintin unconscious and decides to finish him off once and for all when... This is London. You will now hear a statement by the Prime Minister. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note, stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Poland. War in Europe by the late 1930s was increasingly a question of when, not if. Hitler's Germany had annexed Austria and had laid claims to parts of Czechoslovakia, Poland and Hungary. If war between Germany and France were to break out over any of these claims, Belgium would be, for the second time in 25 years, caught in the crossfire of two belligerent nations. While there were some prominent firebrands in Belgium, like Leon de Grel, Hergé's former colleague, who welcomed absorption into the Third Reich, Belgian foreign policy had been largely based on avoiding being drawn into another costly war, a decision that had led Belgian King Leopold III to renounce the nation's military alliances and return to neutrality in 1936. The nation's armed services remained alert and had a long-standing policy of universal military service, in which men would serve full-time in the armed forces for about a year before entering the reserves and being mobilised as necessary. 
Urge had completed his service back in 1927 and had actually anticipated being mobilized following the German invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1938, but had avoided this, quote, thanks to God and Mr. Chamberlain, end quote, a reference to the British Prime Minister's last-ditch effort to placate Hitler. The reprieve would famously not last. Shortly after Urge had finished serialization of King Ottokar's Scepter, in which Tintin battled the fascist collaborators of an expansionist German-inspired nation, the Nazis invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939. While the Belgian government publicly continued to preach the virtues of neutrality, behind closed doors they knew that Belgium was now at risk. War had officially arrived for Europe and for Urge, who was caught up on the day of the invasion. How did Urge respond, both to the outbreak of war and being required to serve? We can infer some basics. For him, life was comfortable and good, and Tintin's reach was extending with every publication. With good friends, a good wife, and a Siamese cat that he would take for walks on a leash, it's unlikely that he dreamed of a new Europe transformed by war into either a liberal utopia for all peoples or some glorious and blood-soaked Aryan confederation. Pierre Asselini notes that Urge's signature does not appear on the Pacifist Manifesto of 1939 signed by the nation's leading intellectuals and journalists. A product, Asselini suggests, not of Urge's secret desire for war, but his oft-proclaimed Gemini resistance to making committed decisions when it could be avoided. While his compulsory military training in 1927 had depressed him greatly, there isn't much despair to be found in Urge's correspondence when war broke out in earnest, and he passed his time as he always did, filling notebooks with sketches of what he saw. Perhaps Urge suspected that war would be over before he actually saw combat. Or perhaps as the citizen of a small nation poised between two continental rivals, another war had always been accepted as inevitable. In any case, Urge's priority remained what it had always been, Tintin. And shortly after King Otakar's scepter wrapped, he began serialization on the boy reporter's next exotic adventure, the tantalizingly titled Land of Black Gold. As he moved between military postings and back home, stoically adhering to the chaotic orders and counter-orders of the vexed Belgian military, he continued to post pages for publication in Le Petit Vétième, writing a letter of apology to readers on the occasion the relentless mobilization delayed the continuation of Tintin's adventure. My dear little friends of Le Petit Vingtième, due to extraordinary circumstances, I have been unable to give you the next instalment of the adventures of our friends Tintin and Malou this week. I beg your pardon very humbly, and I promise you that, barring unforeseen circumstances, earthquake, tidal wave, tornado, or bombardment, you will be reunited with our two heroes in next Thursday's issue. War or not, Urge had an obligation to his readers, and it says a lot about his dedication that he continued to submit pages for serialization during these postings. As fate would have it, he would be declared unfit for active service and for the reserves after an attack of boils and sinusitis, giving him a free hand to continue black gold. And not a moment too soon. Tintin had just been knocked unconscious by the unscrupulous German Dr. Mueller and was about to meet his end. The next pages of the adventure would never appear in Le Petit Vingtième, which was forced to cease publication in the face of wartime paper restriction. On May 11, 1940, only a day after Urge's illness relieved him of all future military obligations, Germany invaded Belgium en route to France. Just as Tintin's future was threatened by Dr. Mueller, so too was that of Urge, 
by a different nefarious German. Yes, I know that Hitler was actually Austrian, but he also considered Austrians to be a Germanic people, so shh. Realising, like the rest of his compatriots, that the occupation of Brussels was imminent, Hergé, his wife Germaine, and their two-year-old Siamese cat, joined the clog exodus of automobiles fleeing for refuge in France. They were graciously given sanctuary by the family of the prominent French illustrator Marachac, but anxiety abounded. In the chaos, Hergé had been unable to make contact with his parents, while his younger brother Paul Remy was still mobilised. For Hergé, as well as for his eight million fellow citizens, their future rested on how King Leopold and his ministers would respond to the second German invasion of Belgium in as many generations. At least they would not have long to wait. The Allied leadership, particularly the British, who had contributed significantly to the doomed defence of Belgium, pressured the Belgian army to fight on via government in exile in Paris or London, perhaps envisioning a repeat of the fabled and heroic Belgian resistance during the First World War under Leopold's father, Albert the Soldier King. The Belgian civil government agreed with this stance and retreated to France. Leopold, however, having assumed command of the armed forces, declared that he would stay in Belgium and share the fate of his troops. He surrendered to the German forces on the 27th of May, barely two weeks after the invasion. Like all of those taken at this time in history, the decision remains a contentious one. On one hand, the Belgian army was still 200,000 men strong, and their surrender effectively meant that France and thus the entirety of Western Europe would be ceded to the Nazis. The British and French decried the cowardice and treachery of Leopold, which stood in stark contrast to the actions of his father, who had stoically fought on against a similar threat. On the other hand, the military situation of 1940 was not that of 1914. The entire Belgian defences strategy had comprehensively failed in just two weeks of coordinated blitzkrieg, and with the army's supply lines completely severed at the mercy of Nazi air supremacy, the prospect of continued effective military resistance was a dubious one. For all the talk of brave little Belgium, her citizens had suffered horrendously during the First World War, and this memory was no doubt at the forefront of Leopold's mind. To this end, he broadcast a message on the 28th of May, the day after the surrender. I am not leaving you in that adversity that is overwhelming us, and I will be here to watch over you and your families. Tomorrow, we will go to work with the unwavering determination to help the country arise from its ruins anew. This decision appalled the civil government in exile, who insisted that the king's surrender was not valid, creating a constitutional schism that would outlast the war itself. The citizens of Belgium were now faced with a choice. Were they to go back to work, as the king had instructed? And more troublingly, would that effectively mean collaboration with the Nazi occupiers? There was no such dilemma on Urge's part. In fact, one can almost sense the palpable relief. He had effectively been given permission by the king, the one political institution he valued above all else, to resume his life's purpose, making Tintin. For me, both feeling and reason placed me immediately, and without hesitation, alongside those who approved the decision of May 28. Many years have passed since then, but I don't think anything has shaken me from my original conviction. The king was right. Urge returned to Belgium as soon as the roads had cleared about a month later, still not having heard from his parents or his brother, one of the many soldiers caught up in the mass surrender of Belgian forces. 
aware that the author's fees from the continuing publication of Tintin albums would not alone be enough to support him and Germain, he was eager to begin producing new strips once more. But where? Le Petit Vingtième, the only home Tintin had ever known, had died alongside its parent newspaper when the occupying authorities had refused authorization for its publication. Le Vingtième is dead. So is Le Petit Vingtième. Now we wait for whatever happens next. Well, there were three categories of newspaper in occupied Belgium. Those that continued under their own initiative, those that had now appeared for the first time, and those that were labelled stolen or pirate because their ownership had been confiscated by the Nazis and were published against the will of their owners or directors, with varying degrees of pro-German sentiment now mandatory. The newspaper Le Soir belonged to the third category, and its newly appointed editor, Raymond de Becker, reached out to Urge, with whom he had collaborated previously, and asked if he would be interested in starting a children's supplement for Le Soir in the style of Le Petit Vintième. Now, to have Tintin openly praise Herr Hitler and the Nazis would be against Urge's personal and professional ideas, but for Tintin to appear alongside editorials that did the same? Well, wasn't he simply going back to work as his sovereign had instructed? Was he any different to the bakers making the bread that the Nazis bought? Urge accepted de Becker's offer. He would spend the rest of his life trying to justify that decision. Much like Leopold's decision to surrender to the Nazis, Urge's decision to publish Tintin in one of their co-opted newspapers cuts to the heart of one's values. It's true that the war in Belgium was over, by order of no less than the king himself, and while Urge believed and hoped that the Germans would be gone eventually, he saw no sense in putting his life on hold until that day. Didn't the children of Belgium need Tintin now, more than ever? That was why, Urge would later say, I had no scruples about working with a newspaper such as Le Soir. The thing is, though, many artists and journalists in occupied Europe, more committed in their opposition than Urge, did choose to put their lives on hold, rather than seem to offer even implicit approval of the forces that invaded their nation. If you were a Belgian that had a son killed in the invasion or executed as a conspirator, how would you feel to see somebody living comfortably off the back of propaganda that glorified his killers? It's an ongoing debate. The willingness, even eagerness, of Urge to have Tintin published in The Stolen Le Soir remains the biggest piece of evidence for those who continue to accuse Urge of fascist sympathies, and he would suffer the consequences of his decision once the Germans were defeated. But all that was in the future. For Urge, no matter what the world looked like, he was committed to carving out a place in it for his creation. Tintin's trajectory would first require a slight alteration. Urge had been lucky, in retrospect, that the obvious German parallels in King Old Carcepta had escaped the attention of the occupying authorities, but he would not tempt fate again, and he understood that Tintin's world must become apolitical to avoid any threat of censure. There was no chance that the halfway-completed land of black gold, with its Jews, Arabs, British, to say little of the German villain, would ever stand a chance in occupied Belgium. And so, Tintin remained at the mercy of the terrible Dr. Mueller in the middle of the Palestinian desert for another ten years, and Urge went back to the drawing board to try and come up with a new story, based on something abhorrent to all political tribes. Perhaps drug smuggling. 
Auger's actions during the Second World War are controversial. But creatively, it's a different story. For all the classic adventures Auger had delivered thus far in the past 11 years, the emotional sympathy of the Blue Lotus, the unfurling mystery of the Black Island, the political tension of King Ottokar's scepter, in retrospect, his best work still lay ahead of him. With the first of his pages to be published in Le Soir, Auger had entered the most eventful period of his life, marked by both the lowest points of his despair and some of the greatest stories of the 20th century. And it was all to begin with one drunken sailor blabbering alone in the cabin of his ship. Until then, Tintin heads. This has been Radio Tintin. Thank you for tuning in.